you have your Bible with you, you can open it to Mark chapter 1. We're in our second week of uh, our new series through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, yesterday I had the uh, privilege and honor of doing the memorial service uh, for Katie Lee Hansen. It got me to thinking about the history of births. Um, we live in a world where uh, when a birth is announced, uh, it's usually a big deal to a relatively small group of people. Parents, obviously, grandparents, siblings, cousins, uh, maybe friends in some circle. But for the most part, uh, each one of us comes into this world rather unheralded. And though there are great uh, promise, there's great promise and optimism and hope for what that child might be, uh, we just kind of have to take a uh, time will tell. Um, and in the world in which we live, uh, very few live beyond uh, the time in which they occupied space. Uh, history uh, comes to reflect who stood out, uh, but usually that doesn't happen until after a person is gone. Not so uh, the subject of Mark. He is different than you and I. Uh, I doubt that uh, any of you knew that my mother was pregnant with me uh, in 1966 and 67. In fact, you didn't know anything about me until Three years ago, this Sunday, uh, this church called me to be the pastor of our church. I confess, I didn't know about your birth either, uh, but I'm grateful to be uh, here with you uh, as your pastor and involved in your life. Mark uh, is telling us about someone who is different uh, from everyone else. His birth uh, was not only heralded, it was talked about well in advance, and no one uh, has left more of a mark on this world than the person of Jesus Christ. Last week, we began a new series through the Gospel of Mark, and the Spirit moved among us last Sunday. Uh, it wasn't because we had, a, we had executed a well-planned service, though I assure you, your staff works very hard to do just that. It, it wasn't because our worship together uh, was inspiring and moving. Uh, it was, but that's not the reason. It wasn't because of the person preaching God's Word, though I assure you, I always approach this with a great deal of uh, soberness uh, and passion. Uh, to communicate God's word to you. It was because the Spirit of God has a vested interest in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Spirit loves showing up whenever and wherever uh, Jesus is being made a big deal of. And that is why our motto is to make much of Jesus Christ from the mountains of Gunnison, Colorado to the remotest parts of the world. One, because we believe that Jesus is the hope of the world. Uh, he is the answer to what plagues you and I most but also because we desire to see more of the Spirit work among us. And so we make it our effort to make much of Jesus on a weekly basis. In that regard, last week was a fitting start to our series because it's precisely how Mark begins his gospel. His account assumes the birth of Jesus Christ. It's the only way anyone gets into this world. Uh, and he moves immediately, as we saw last week, to introducing the identity of his subject in verse 1, which we unpacked last week. Now, we started last week with two concerns, which I want to rephrase uh, and repeat here. First, please, for your own soul's sake, suspend any familiarity you may think you have with the story of Jesus and the Gospel of Mark specifically. Second, determine to come to Mark with a spirit of expectancy, to hear the Word of God afresh and anew as he puts the narrative of the Gospel of the greatest person who has ever walked the earth before us the one whom uh, you were most meant to know, 
and the one you will spend an ex- a lifetime and never exhaust uh, a study of his life or a devotion to him. Mark's gospel is a recounting of Peter's preaching, as I told you last week. Uh, in that regard, it's written in oral fashion, and it was, in- it was intended to be read uh, to a-, a largely illiterate, illiterate culture. It reads like a three-act drama that moves from, uh, from one progression uh, from the city of the area of Galilee where Jesus starts his ministry to its culmination in Jerusalem where his ministry or his purpose will be accomplished. It will seem like the end of the story, but it is only the beginning. Mark puts Jesus before him and he holds him in focus before us. As I told you last week, after the naming of the disciples, Mark rarely mentions any of the disciples' names. He does everything he does to keep us focused on the person of Jesus. And if you walk with Mark through the gospel, it is impossible for you to arrive at the end and not be able to answer the question, either positively or negatively, who then is this? This is the question Mark puts before us time and time again. Now, Mark's gospel begins with a prologue, which is uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, that stands apart from the quick-paced three-act drama. Having begun with the identity of his subject in verse 1, and just prior to the beginning of the narrative about Jesus in verse 14, Mark is going to substantiate the lasting significance of the birth, life, and work of the person whose story he is about to tell us with three character witnesses, John the baptizer, God the Father, and Satan. Now today we consider the first of those three in a message I've titled, Something Old, Something New. This morning we'll consider verses 1 through 8, and as we do, I want to unpack uh, Mark's message around three statements that turn on that phrase. Chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Two things, uh, just by way of reminder, last week we focused on the word beginning. It's the Greek word arche. Mark here is clearly uh, hearkening back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created And after God created, what did he say on each day? It is good. And yet Mark's use of arche here uh, is is similar but different from John's use of the same word. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was God. He references the same creation. Mark is referencing uh, as beginning something new. In fact, something greater than creation itself. John is, uh, uh, Mark is introducing rather the beginning of the good news about the remaking of all things. This is a new beginning. The second word is the word euangelion, the word gospel. It's the word for good news, and it was commonly used in the culture at the time. But in Mark's use of the gospel, he's, he's not, not just talking about a type of literature that we've come to know in the Bible as the gospels. He's talking about the good news about two things. One, the person of Jesus Christ, and second, the message of Jesus Christ. Now, from there, we pick up uh, where we left off last week uh, at verse 2 through 8. And I want to start with this first point, that something new in the verses that we're looking at is rooted in something old. Just as verse 1 is intended to hit us like a 90-mile-an-hour gust, Mark sets up the quickness of his narrative by rushing us to the shores of the River Jordan. He introduces that movement with the words of Isaiah in chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Uh, let me stop and say that the verse 1 is not intended to be merely a title to Mark's gospel. Uh, It's the introduction, but there's no break. Mark doesn't even take a breath. He immediately continues uh, with the the Greek word kathos, which is a a connection in thought. 
And what he says is, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So, so Mark moves immediately from uh, that breathtaking introduction to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and says that before he comes, there would be a forerunner. He's given us no time to catch our breath. Now what's interesting about my, uh, Mark's quote of Isaiah is that it's actually a scriptural mashup. Val loves mashing songs up together, uh, taking one song and figuring out how to put them together. That's precisely what happens here. Now, the reason why Mark quotes Isaiah is because when a, a series of truths from the Old Testament are put together, you, uh, you quote the greatest of those writing. Isaiah is considered to be the greatest prophet. But it's actually a combination of three different verses. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Exodus chapter 23, verse 20, and Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. This is significant because in quoting Exodus, uh, Mark is quoting uh, the, great, uh, the first prophet of Israel, Moses, and then in quoting Malachi, he's quoting the last prophet of the Old Testament in Malachi, and then he adds Isaiah, who, is, who he attributes the quote to. More than likely, these three verses had been put together by the children of Israel who were long awaiting the coming of Messiah. Mark's inclusion, though, uh, has the particular effect of taking the whole story of the Old Testament, from the beginning all the way to the end of the Old Testament, when God goes silent for 400 years, and he says, lest you think that this something new uh, is uh, God's backup plan or uh, a new idea, it's rooted in the entire story of the Old Testament. From Moses to Malachi, God has been awaiting the sending of Messiah who would be preceded by a forerunner. The coming of Messiah, which is to follow uh, the fulfillment of prophecy regarding the forerunner, is not an afterthought to God. The something new has been God's plan since before all of that began. In fact, before all of creation. This new thing is rooted in eternity past. The Apostle Paul gives us insight to this in Ephesians chapter 1, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Remember, Christ is the title Yahshua Messiah. Blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. As Jesus comes onto the scene, uh, preceded by the forerunner, which we're fixing to learn more about, he's not coming to establish his throne in the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, that, that, that something old was simply buying time until God's primary plan, which was to come himself, uh, could be enacted. The one who is to follow the forerunner, then, Mark is saying, is no ordinary person. In fact, both Mark uh, and the message of the forerunner that he heralds give us further insight into the identity of this person. Look at what Mark says, uh, look at uh, Mark's quote of Isaiah chapter 40. Verse 3 says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What I'd like you to call your attention to, which you don't pick up on in Mark, is the word Lord. You notice that it's capitalized? L-O-R-D? Did you know that when you read your Bible and you come across that word, it's telling you something? 
When you see the word Lord capitalized, now it can be lower, it can be capital L, lowercase O-R-D, and that means Adonai. Or if it's capitalized, it means Yahweh. This is the covenant name of God. What Isaiah is telling us is that the forerunner who's going to herald the coming of Messiah is going to actually be heralding the coming of God. This is one of the greatest promises Israel had held on to and cherished. And, and since Malachi, God had not spoken to the people of Israel. It's been 400 years since God voiced himself through a prophet. And what Mark is setting us up for here, he's, he's setting us up to realize that God is about to speak, and he's about to speak for the last time. Can I just encourage you? I hear uh, Christians, well-meaning Christians, often use a phrase called, uh, where they will say, the Lord gave me a word. That's akin to the Old Testament prophet saying, thus says the Lord. I would, if you're accustomed to using that phrase, I would caution you not to use it. God has spoken one last time definitively through his son. The canon is closed. Scripture is complete. We have everything we need. So if God is prompting you or he's teaching you from scriptures, find another way to say it than to imply that God has given you something fresh and new. If we're looking for a hope, if we're looking for redemption, there is no other hope coming than Jesus Christ, and he is signaled by the forerunner. Mark continues to introduce us, the forerunner, again, uh, no break in the thought, not a chance to breathe. He says in verse 4, John appeared. John appeared. You take the entirety of the Old Testament prophets from, from Moses to Malachi, and they've all talked about God's plan to send Messiah into the world. And he would be preceded by a forerunner, and John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. John's name means the Lord is gracious. It's a fitting name because John, uh, in a long line of prophets, is about to become the greatest prophet. Why, you ask? Because he's the introducer. He's the person who is announcing that Messiah is fixing to take center stage, that God is going to speak, that God is clothing himself in flesh and coming. Isaiah had predicted there would be one a prophet raised up who would prepare the way of the coming of Messiah. And John is the fulfillment of that in two ways. First, he did that by preaching a message of repentance and forgiveness. Heretofore, the message in Israel was that you should bring a, an unblemished lamb to the temple where it would be slaughtered on an altar of sacrifice to cover your sins. This was the message up until John. But John comes preaching something new, repentance and forgiveness and preparing for the ultimate gospel message of forgiveness in, uh, through the person of Jesus Christ and his work. And then second, he did that a second way by becoming the one who announced the coming of Christ and baptizing him. Now notice what a strange human being John is. What an interesting account. What are we told um, about this man? That he has a, a vegan diet and a very odd uh, outfit, apparel, and he's out in the wilderness. It, think about it for just a moment. This is the one that God raised up to begin, the point, to begin to point us to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
who at this time is now alive and on earth and ready to begin his public ministry. We're given the picture of a wild and woolly prophet out in the wilderness. Wouldn't you have thought that if it were going to be a messenger, it would have been the chief priest in Jerusalem holding a press conference? Or, or that it would be a Pharisee, or that it would be an esteemed scribe, or that it would be a Sadducee, or, or that they would have hired a Madison Avenue marketing firm. But no, it's a weird guy out in the wilderness wearing hairy clothes and eating locusts and honey. This is the herald that was called to pronounce Jesus' coming. Here again, something new is rooted in something old. Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet, wrote of the forerunner to Messiah. In verse 5 of chapter 4, he writes, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. First, Second Kings chapter 1, verse 8, we read these words of Elijah. He wore a garment of hair and wore, with a belt of leather around his waist, and he said, It is Elijah. In Mark chapter 9, the disciples are going to ask, Doesn't the pro- don't the prophets tell us that before Messiah can come, Elijah must return? And Jesus is going to say, I tell you, he already has. And they did to him whatever they wanted. John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. And his uh, being compared to Elijah is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that before Messiah comes, he would be heralded. Second, something new uh, is the rejection of something old. Something new is the rejection of something old. Mark turns to uh, John's ministry and he says in verse 4, John appeared baptizing where? In the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. What I'd like you to see is I'd like you to notice the movement. The movement is away from Jerusalem. The movement is, is away from the temple. It's, it's going out into the wilderness to hear a message that's completely different from what is being announced in Jerusalem. It's a message of repentance and confession and uh, repentance of sin and forgiveness. We need to understand how radical John's ministry was. There is in the ministry of John a stinging indictment against the religion of the day. People were going to the wilderness The wilderness is a significant place in the history of Israel. Their deliverance from Egypt started in the wilderness. And before they could make their way to the promised land, they had to be baptized in the Red Sea. When Joshua leads the Israelites to cross the Jordan to begin inheriting the promised land, again, they have to enter through the wilderness. They have to be baptized, as it were, in the Jordan. And so all of a sudden, these little indicators that have been there Uh, for the Israelites about what it means to have a relationship with God. It's about going to the wilderness. It's a place of brokenness. And yet it's in the wilderness uh, where uh, God's people find hope. It's at the point of your brokenness that God begins to work. And listen, if everything's going well for you and you never have any difficult times, then you're probably not going to see God move in significant ways as your deliverer. But when you find yourself broken... When you find yourself hopeless, when you come face to face with your own sinfulness that you cannot change and you're filled with weeping, friend, that's when your deliverer is just about to go to work. God is our hope and he meets us in the wilderness. And so as John is there, so Jesus is going to join him in the the wilderness, a place of 
brokenness, and hope. John's ministry and message serves notice to the new thing that is coming as a rejection of the old uh, man-centered externalism. Think about the temple. The temple was an exclusive place. Not just everyone could go there. Not everyone could get close. In fact, only the, the high priest could even enter the Holy of Holies where God's presence resided over the Ark of the Covenant. And you know what they would do to the high priest when it was his turn to go in annually? They would tie a rope around his ankle. You know why? In case it didn't go well for him, they could drag him out because no one was going in there after him. And all of a sudden, God is, is rejecting resoundingly this, this external um, uh, legalistic uh, approach to having a, relation with, a relationship with God. God is rejecting in the ministry of Jesus works-based righteousness. Uh, he's rejecting spiritual hypocrisy. All that ever did was lead to death. In the world of religions, Christianity, I said this yesterday, is the only faith that offers a solution to the problem that plagues us most deeply, our sin. Every other philosophy, every other religion is offering you a way to work on it. Just try to improve yourself. And all it leads to, friends, is death. So God raises up someone outside of the religious system of the day, outside of deadening externalism, outside of its spiritual pride, to call people once again uh, to what every human being needs most, to confess how deep their sins are and to seek the one thing that you cannot earn, God's forgiveness. The religion of the day was riddled with pride, riddled with legalistic performance, and the narrow arrogance of uh, looking the part on the outside while pointing to other people who aren't doing quite as well as I am. Besides linking him to, jo to Elijah, uh, Mark shows us that perhaps one of the reasons why we're told about John's garments is that while John was clothed in, in uh, hairy garments with a belt and eating locusts and honey out in the wilderness, the religious establishment were dressed in the best the world had to offer. I think it's a good reminder uh, to the prosperity preachers in our day who continually fleece their congregation so that they can uh, justify Learjets to continue the work of the Lord. The, the work of the one who said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I, I believe that Jesus probably feels the same about prosperity preachers uh, as he did about the religious establishment of, the t of, of that day. It's still with us today. And God, in sending the forerunner and then the Messiah, is rejecting externalism. But it's always been with us. Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and of the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, these were festivals, and calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Why are we told later? Isaiah chapter 29 verse 13 says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So God raises up a prophet, quite apart from the formal religious system of the day, to call people to repentance 
to confession, to seeking forgiveness. God is, and he will ultimately, in the end, reject the religion that stresses outward performance over heart change. And Jesus is going to offer a redemptive relationship that forges inward renewal and purity. Now, we can't or we shouldn't read this account without hearing its warning. Let's be honest. Religion is not dead. Works-based faith is not dead. Externalism is not dead. I would even go so far as to suggest that it still exists right here at Community Church. We can sing with great enthusiasm, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, and then be an ungracious father or husband or friend. We can talk at length about the love of God, yet live a selfish, uh, me-oriented, unloving lives, stepping over human need and not being bothered by it at all. We can talk about reconciliation with God and be willing to live in broken relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. We can talk about the sovereignty of God, his control over our lives, yet uh, we strive to take control of our circumstances and our situations, and we worry all the time. You see, there's a, a disconnect between what we project and what we really believe. The heart of our faith must not merely be theological knowledge. It must not be uh, merely uh, external Christian habits. Uh, The heart of our faith must be that we know and we love and we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a heart that is ruled by him in all situations and in all relationships of our daily lives. Could it be that God is saying to some of us, enough of your hymns? Enough of your offerings. Enough of buying another Christian book. They are an abomination to me because you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. It's a radical picture here of God rejecting man-centered, works-based religion. It's God saying that system will never lead to redemption because that system is not dependent on me. Many of us want a cup of Jesus, just just enough of Jesus, and then we'll handle the rest of it on our own, little well knowing how deep our depravity is and how utterly incapable we are of becoming righteous like our Savior. There is such a thing as Christless Christianity, and it can be that your your theological knowledge and your Christian habits actually promote personal sin because it's not about the habits of the heart. Uh, it's about, uh, uh, or, or a theology of the, the heart, it's about appearance. It's about looking the part. And this leads to my last observation. Something new that reverses something old is the right response. Something new that reverses something old uh, is the right response. Mark chapter 1, verse 7, Mark moves to John's message. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John became a person of notoriety. He's quite popular. Mark would have us to think that he had established quite a reputation throughout Israel. In fact, in verse 5, it says, all the country, you know what it means when it says all? 
Almost everybody, all of them, all the country, except for the religious leaders of Judea and all Jerusalem, were going out to him and were being baptized by him. That's quite a movement uh, his way, just going out to see John. But John realized his position. He realized who he was. He was just the forerunner. He was just the warm-up act. The real one was following And it's like he's saying, I'm not the mighty one. I'm not the answer. I'm not the Messiah. I don't have to offer you what you actually need. There is one who's coming after me who's mighty, who's mighty in power and in grace and in love and in wisdom and in redemption. He's what you need in your weakness and your brokenness. You need his might, not my own. And then he says both sweet and humble words. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. It's a cultural reference. As a master of the house would enter the house, the junior, the the lowest guy on the totem pole, the lowest servant in the house would, would rush to the door and he would get down on his knees and he would remove his master's sandals and he would wash his dusty feet. It was a, a despicable job. And John says, this one is so mighty. This one is so wonderful. I'm not even worthy to do the basest things for him. This is a man who's been recognized by many. This is a great prophet speaking. In fact, he's the greatest prophet because he announces God's coming. Jesus is also going to say that among those born among women, there is none greater than John the Baptist, even though his life and ministry are gone like that. You know why? Because he knew Jesus. And it put him in his place. I believe the reason why Jesus said that about John is because John shows us what it truly means to know Jesus. And he shows us uh, how to truly uh, be drawn by Jesus to the right response. You see, knowing Jesus, John knows his place. In fact, John is going to say of himself, I must decrease and he must increase. You could say it this way, the only way we will ever be in our proper place is if Jesus is first in his proper place in our life. Humility is the product of worship. It's two sides of the same coin. If you really know Jesus, then you're drawn to the right response about him. If, if you really know Jesus, then I don't care whether you can sing or not, you're, you're compelled to worship him as best you can. You want to give him your very best. If you really know Jesus, then, then you ask yourself as your feet hit the floor every morning, God, what is it you've got for me today? Because I'm yours, Lord. Everything I've got, everything I am, everything I'm not. If you really know Jesus, John is saying, then it puts you in your right place. John knows what he's here for. It's not about him. It's not his story. It's not his moment. Listen, this is not John's moment. Everyone in Judea and Jerusalem was coming to John, and John is just waiting for the chance to say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he's happy to fade off into history where he will have his head removed from his shoulders. But that's okay. It's not about him. It's about Jesus. In our day, uh, it's become popular to film testimony, especially among celebrities, and it's called I Am Second. 
I am second. Testimonies about, uh, about following Jesus and, and taking my rightful place as being second to him. John teaches a doctoral class on I am second. To be second, uh, John would have us understand you've got to have a sense of history. You've got to have a sense of history. This is contrary to the narcissism of our day that squeezes all of time into the radical now. You know why so many of us compromise uh, the moments with God now? Because we've jammed too much of the future into the present moment. Or we're still carrying too much of the past and not free to walk with God now. This radical now changes when you have a sense of history that I'm just a part, I'm just a bit player in God's kingdom and I'm happy to be so. When I understand... Uh, that uh, with a sense of history, I am second. It leads me to the life that God is calling me to live, the life I was created to live. Second, to be second, uh, you must be also submissive. We see this in John. This means resisting the desire of radical self. Romans chapter 12, said, Paul says, Hey, I, I beseech you therefore, brothers, to, to offer your life as a living sacrifice. You all know where we're headed, aren't you? Don't you? What's the problem with a living sacrifice? Crawls off the altar. That's why Paul says you got to do this every day. Because we are, we are prone to uh, put self forward. But if, like John, we are to be second to Jesus in our rightful place, then we must be submissive to him. And then third, to be second, you must also be self-sacrificing. John's life and ministry, as I said, are short-lived. But he found his joy in the glory of Christ by giving up a self-serving pursuit of radical happiness. Some of us are just not available to God because we're so fixated on trying to fix our own lives, on trying to chase after the things that the world has told us. If you, if you just acquire this, and we say, we lie to ourselves and say, right after this, after this busy season, after I get this project done, after the kids are gone, when we pay the house off, we're always punting the ball down the road, kicking the can. But if you really know Jesus, then you'll have a sense of history. You'll learn to be submissive, and you'll be willing to sacrifice for the Lord's cause. Now, why would John go against the grain of his own human flesh? Well, we see the answer and what he says in verse 8. John says something glorious. He says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was a, a preparation. It was a sign uh, of what was to come, but it, it still didn't change the human heart. You see, in order for that to happen, then we need the fulfillment of many passages, including Joel in the Old Testament, where God would not just abide in a temple, but where he would take up residence in the heart of man, and he would remove, as Jeremiah said, hearts of stone and replace it with hearts of flesh. John's ministry was limited to water baptism, but he says, the one I'm forerunning for, the one who's coming next, Messiah, Yahweh, God himself will baptize you with his Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting, you'll see this over the next two weeks. When Mark starts his narrative, again, what's the focus? Who's the focus? Jesus. So we'll hear scarcely little about the Holy Spirit. But three times in Mark's prologue, the Holy Spirit is cited because he is the power, the dunamis, behind the ministry of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, uh, 
this one will deal with the ultimate damage of sin because he is God. What does sin bring? Sin brings death, externalism, the world of religion. It can only ever bring death. Try as you might, you will only ever produce through your own ability death. This is why I implore you to turn to Christ. He is the one by his spirit who will give life. John says that is something I can't give. You see, this introduction of the ministry of Christ is like a great knife that slices its way through the middle of humanity. Because if you believe these words, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Mighty One, the Savior who will take away the sins of the world and give new life, it changes everything about your life. It changes all of your relationships. It changes the way you live your life. It becomes the single most important thought and pursuit of your existence. It defines everything you think about, everything you think about this world, everything you think about others, everything you think about yourself. Or, you might be in the other camp of humanity, you might just say it's silly delusion. How could you believe such a thing? Mark is taking us on a journey where he's going to continually confront us with that question, who do you say that Jesus is? It's either one way or the other. As C.S. Lewis says, Jesus confronts us and there is nothing else that we conclude except for that he is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. So like John this morning, if we know Jesus, if, it, if we truly know Jesus, then it governs our life. I would ask you today, what are you doing with Jesus? Have you placed your faith in him? If you are a believer Do you live by faith in him? Or are you still walking by sight, doing your dead level best to try to make good, trying to let your positives outweigh your negatives? If that's what you're doing, friends, and you're not walking in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, freely provided to you, it is yours for the embracing and to walk in it. But you must walk in it. And it necessarily leads to a life of devotion to Jesus Christ. Does that belief in Jesus Christ shape the way you think about marriage? Or the way you think about your parenting? Or the way you think about your life? Or the way you think about your job? Friends, there is no secular and sacred. There is no divide in God's economy between secular and sacred. Everything is spiritual. You say, well, I'm a carpenter. I'm a chiropractor. I'm this or I'm that. You're that by God's gifting and, and calling, and it matters to him how you do what you do. And if we know Jesus, then as Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, we're doing whatever we can, uh, whatever we can, work hard as unto the Lord, since it's he that you're serving. Do the radical claims of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, move and motivate you. They did John. John is an incredible example to us that there is of the incomparable person of Jesus Christ. There is no one like him. Search the whole world over. You'll never find anyone who loves you the way he does, knows you the way he does, and has given himself fully and freely to redeem you and restore you 
to who you were created to be. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the forerunner. We confess uh, that it loses some of its impact because we were not always for millennia holding on to the hope of the coming Messiah. But the children of Israel were. And they knew full well that prior to the Messiah's coming, there must be a forerunner in the spirit and ministry of Elijah. And so, as Jesus says, he has come. We are grateful, Father, for this pivotal point in history where uh, something new uh, that's rooted in something old and rejecting uh, something old in terms of externalism is bringing to us the hope of a relationship with you and of the right response which we were created for. The chief end of our lives is to glorify you and delight in you forever. I pray this morning that John would not be a a, a story that has passing significance to us, but that we would learn from him. Learn from one who has fixed his eyes on the author and perfecter of his faith, and in response to that has seen himself appropriately in light of that. May every one of us here this morning who profess a relationship with you, who have uh, been drawn by your Spirit to the forgiveness of sins, to repentance, and, and to forgiveness and salvation and adoption into your family, may we not easily live our days without consideration of the King of kings and Lord of lords who has purchased us with his very precious blood and broken body. We are yours, Lord Jesus, lock, stock, and barrel. And we ask you, by the moving of your Spirit, to make us more of who we were meant to be as Christ followers, as husbands, as wives, as mothers, as fathers, as brothers and sisters, as residents in this community. May we be a beacon of light that doesn't seek to point glory to ourselves, but willingly says, listen, let me tell you about one who has changed my life. May we point faithfully to our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.